0: Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about a few things, uh, two movies in Overlord and The Other Side of the Wind, but I'm also uh, joined by my friend Elijah Howard, who uh, has some ties to Filmstruck, so we're going to eulogize Filmstruck a little bit. Uh, Elijah, thanks for joining me.
1: Pleasure, as always, Josh.
0: Yeah, so we're going to start with Overlord and then uh, get to the other two things uh, first, because I think they kind of go together in one way. Overlord is the newest film from Bad Robot, uh, J.J. Abrams' production company. It's uh, directed by uh, Julius Avery and uh, written by billy ray and uh, mark l smith it tells the story of a bunch of paratroopers on uh, i guess on the eve of d day as they are on a mission to uh take out a german radio tower and their landing in this uh french town does not go as uh easily as they expected and they take shelter with a french woman and are surrounded by a bunch of nazis and Things get weird, and it goes from there. Uh, Elijah, I I, I know uh, I saw your Letterboxd review of this. so I guess it's safe to say that you're happy this this wasn't an extension
1: of the Cloverfield universe. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll, I'll be the first person to tell you that I I love Cloverfield. Is I don't I don't, I almost don't want to call it a guilty pleasure because of how good um, you know Ten Cloverfield Lane was, and I think how how much in a retrospect how good the original Cloverfield was paradox is a bit of a letdown yeah um so so i do i do love this series um but it was so uh this was such a refreshing and um i don't want to say unique necessarily but in uh in this year in this couple of years that we've had it was such a, a you know a breath of fresh air to get a film as uh individual as overlord so
0: Yeah, and I I mean, that was just a joke on my part. I mean, I enjoy all the Uh, uh, Cloverfield stuff up until uh, Paradox, but I think there there, there have been rumors that that that's what this was going to be, another one of those, and... But the thing is even after I heard that it had been debunked, that like after it, everyone said, no, that's not it, I still had it in my head. I don't know if I'd actually heard it reported somewhere, but I still heard that, oh, it's still going to be like an alien movie. It's just not going to be a Cloverfield movie. So that's why – I thought it was going to be like soldiers fighting aliens during World War II coming into the movie, which seemed kind of ridiculous. So I was actually uh, – uh, pleasantly surprised when it turned out to be like a just a heightened version of reality in that uh, nazis actually did perform some messed up experiments during the holocaust and this was just kind of uh that on steroids which is an apt term for uh more than one reason as uh, as as we'll get to about this movie but uh yeah so it it follows this uh troop of guys who i mean yeah, in theory, you could call a lot of these uh, soldiers stock characters, but I think i it's, you know, I really enjoyed the movie, too, as it sounds like you did, but I think these characters are actually pretty good. Uh, one's uh, kind of the leader of the group, uh, who is uh, Ford, played by Wyatt Russell. The kind of the ultimate hero is— Played by Jovan Deppe, who you might know from The Leftovers. He's Boyce, and then you have the Italian guy, the Jewish guy, and the guy that takes pictures because <laughs> you. The, it, this is a troop of soldiers in the World War II, and of course you need to have those guys. Uh, so. I guess I guess we should start at the beginning though before I even like get to the, the real meat of the movie because like man, mm-hmm. when was the last time you went to a movie that like started out with like a scene like this intense? I, I guess, uh, I, 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 it's, speaking of World War II movies, like the first few minutes of uh, Dunkirk last year were actually pretty intense. I missed them on my first showing because like if you saw that with the 30 millimeter like it didn't have previews and I uh, missed that. So like, I always forget about the beginning of Dunkirk and I thought that was pretty intense with like uh, and just shot differently than the rest of that movie but like the the opening sequence of this movie is uh really distinct from that even though they're both world war II and it's uh pretty damn intense
1: yeah i mean i think there's a there's a a tried and true tradition of world war II films beginning with uh you know um with explosive uh elaborate set pieces i mean you said you mentioned dunkirk of course saving private ryan has the famous you know uh, omaha beach sequence at the beginning um you know, so yeah, it's, I think it's a. I I I said it this way. I just, you know, you're in for a treat when you go into a movie theater and, you know, the lights go down and the first thing that happens is the screen, um, shrinks. Hmm. You know, with the it, 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 it uh, the aspect ratio of the screen, the curtains uh, close enough so that it's in the two three five uh, to one aspect ratio. Which is that you know, real ultra wide screen, ultra you know, like it's just really like you know it's going to be something cinematic. Um, and uh, it's it's I've almost have like a Pavlovian reaction to hearing the the rotors on the curtains you know gl- gl- closing down. So.
0: What's well, interesting here, you say that because I mean. Uh... I, I, it's not something that I. That's not even something I'm aware of. Now I'm sure I'll keep an eye out for that. But I. It's ironic that you that that it's changing the changing it in that way and giving you a wider screen is what gives you that response because I thought what was so cool about this first scene where they're jumping out of the plane is that like it it's shot so tightly. And it it makes it very distinct from some of these other war movies you were citing because, like, those are often very expansive, big settings, uh, big battles and open spaces. And this is feels very unique from any kind of opening war movie scene you'd ever seen when it's just a bunch of guys trying to get off a plane. And I sometimes get frustrated watching movie scenes like that where, I mean, everything is just shot in close ups and quick cuts and it's hard to tell what's going on, but like, I, I don't know, man, like, that, it, I, I, I was able to really follow that really closely and just trying to get off the plane with them. And I, I was pretty, um, enraptured with it.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think, um, I think one thing that the scene did really well was it established, um, you know, the localized geography of that specific plane, uh, cargo hold yeah. just really well, the way, that, you know, there's cuts. It's not a single continuous take, although there are moments where it does hang. Right, right, um, right, right. But it's, uh, you know, there's—it does a very good job showing you the depth of the hull so you can see where everybody's sitting. Um, and it, it, it does a good job revealing aspects of the of the hole. We don't see Ford until the camera turns around. You know, we see boys. And we see Rosenfeld, and we see Boyce, and we see Rosenfeld, and then you know we get these cut back and forth, and then the camera does, uh, you know, it cuts, and now we're seeing towards the back of the plane, and we see Ford sitting in the corner, and it's establishing both the plane and Ford, and we we learn so much from just that one cut and that one change of angle about the setting, about the characters. Um, about the way that they interact, and I mean, it's it's really tight, really well done.
0: Yeah, I, I was uh, I was just I was very taken with it. And so at that point, though, when you have a scene that's of that nature to start a film, I I had I don't even think I watched a trailer from this movie. It just there it didn't seem like there was at least a whole lot of marketing in the in the in the uh, mediums that I frequent for it so i was able to avoid seeing a trailer so I, I guess i don't know i maybe i maybe at that point i'm expecting a more uh traditional war film throughout uh based on that did it set you up for a were you expecting a different kind of movie based on that and what was your reaction when the when the movie does kind of turn into something different pretty soon after you i mean they have the scene where uh um yeah we're gonna we're, and we'll probably just spoil this movie because people get shot and stuff throughout and it'd be really hard to do a spoiler <laughs> section so uh it's a pretty intense scene once they're back on the ground and uh, Bokeem Woodbine gets taken out. But, I mean, after that, it, it kind of slows down. So what was your expectation for the movie from that point on? And uh, what what do you think of the direction that it ultimately went in from that point forth?
1: You know, I, I really liked it. I liked um, the—I don't want to say the unexpected nature, but, yeah, I mean, there was—you um, know, you mentioned—I think it's—I don't remember if it's Bokeem Woodbine or Jacob Anderson who gets— killed rather unexpectedly within the first 10 minutes um and i think it's just a great you know really simple it's not trying to do anything but it's that that analogy for war you know these guys are walking along through the forest and then jacob anderson steps on a mine and he's gone yeah bokeem woodbine's
0: not unexpected he runs into a bunch of nazis and uh wyatt russell has to stop uh boys from stopping it because it's kind of obvious like he's done for but yeah the other guy is the one that just steps on a mine which is um yeah that 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 does catch you off guard
1: yeah, I mean, it definitely did. And, and it, you know, it just goes to show the power of something like that. It's not a scare, per se, and it's not even something that hasn't been done before in films. I mean, we've seen, you know, somebody—that, that, that uh, you know, reaction shot of somebody stepping on a mine or something. Ugh, yeah. And we've seen that a lot of times in films. And, uh, you know, they, uh, was it Kingsman? Was that this year that did it as a joke? I mean— I think
0: now—shoot. Now, I think—I don't know. Was that movie already— Man, this should have been a long year of movies, but that might have been in the spring actually. Springer um, mean,
1: spring or it was la- it was either the- or spring or last spring fall. Spring it was last year. I don't but, remember. But yeah, but- yeah,
0: that, that's actually a pretty uh is that Mark Strong that plays that guy where he uh, right. steps on the thing at the end and that's actually a fairly moving moment, uh, for a silly movie. But yeah, I mean it's we like you said, we've seen it recently, but it's the kind of thing that like it puts you on high alert. I mean, the rest of the movie. Yeah. Even if something yeah. even if people are not in battle scenes throughout you know that that's a possibility just wherever anyone's walking outside and it, it you have it in the back of your mind i guess but yeah i mean even after that like you don't know exactly where they're gonna go but then they uh they run into the chloe character in the woods and um end up back at her uh her home and i mean at that point it really isn't uh, an action movie i mean it's intense when you know there are other uh nazis running around but the action kind of slows for a while but i i actually really enjoy the feeling of that part of the movie uh for as long as they're in there i mean uh it's obviously pretty intense when the uh captain uh waffner the nazi uh comes in later and uh but i don't know i i, I a movie which i do like uh not as much as some of some of david Ayer's other movies but i like fury which is a uh, which is another World War II movie uh, about a group of guys, but there's the whole interlude in the middle of that movie where Brad Pitt and Logan Lerman go into the uh, the German family's home, or just the the young girl and her aunt, and like I kind of I just like that feeling of like just kind of being in the eye of the storm of a war movie when you've already surrounded it with really intense stuff, and it's like all of a sudden things really slow because you're in this temporarily safe zone. And I don't know, I, I kind of I like that contrast that where the the movie's kind of it's bookended by like really exciting stuff. But like I think it's like a it's a cool different feeling to have like amidst war.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I don't think, um, you know, I don't think pacing wise it's out of place. I, I've seen that that was a, you know, a criticism. Uh, but to me, I think um, I don't think the movie would work without it or if it had come later. Um, I don't think it would have worked. I think it works exactly where it is, because it's believable in that moment that, you know, they've just, you know, a bunch of (laughs) American soldiers have just, you know, secretly quartered this French woman's house, basically. Um, You know, realistically speaking, somebody's going to have to go and have a conversation with her and, you know, treat her like a normal person so that, you know, she doesn't get too nervous or, you know, things like that. And I mean, that to me, that was realistic. Is realistic that you know, despite all of the you know situations going on and all of the other soldiers upstairs, uh, you know, trying to plan how the hell they're going to get out of this, that Boyce realistically has to go downstairs and just talk to this woman like a normal person.
0: But that's also the point at which the movie becomes something other than uh, a traditional action movie with this a slow sequence right. because you have the exactly. thing uh, with her—is it her aunt? or her, yeah, with with her, with her aunt and you don't really know what's going on there. So, uh, how did you think of how the movie like slowly incorporated these sci-fi elements into what initially started out as a war movie?
1: Um, I thought it was really good. And I mean, I think it, uh, you know, like you said, the film is, is science fiction and it is, uh, you know, a horror film or whatever, but I think, you know, the most accurate, description could just be hyper-realism because, like you said, these were things that to some degree probably did happen. Um, and I liked that that was the way that they chose to introduce the Nazi experiments because, again, it's just teasing it. We don't really know what the you know depth of the experiments are at that point. We just see their effects on one person. And I think that that was realistic because, I mean, how many times have, have we heard stories of Oh yeah, my my uncle was a, uh, you know, or my great-grandparent or somebody was, uh, you know, was kidnapped by Nazis and you know they experimented on them in Auschwitz or things like that. Um, you know, it's something that I think probably you and I, uh, maybe specifically, have heard a number of times, especially when we were a lot younger. Um, and you don't necessarily, you know, when you when you don't know the context of those experiments, when you don't know the history of the war those things can seem monstrous. Right. And I think that was definitely this, the feeling that you get with that scene where Boyce goes and, you know, despite Chloe's warning, don't bother her. She's very sick. He goes and he looks in the door anyways. And he sees this woman who is, you know, very seriously disfigured and he's scared by it. Um, Even though really there's no reason to be afraid of her. You know, she's not, she's not a villain.
0: Well, I mean, so. when you see the, uh, f- someone that looks like that, like of course, uh, uh, you're going to be at least initially afraid. And up until that point, I guess I was still under the impression it was an alien movie until uh, right. <laughs> and, 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 and up until the very moment that uh, Chloe comes up to explain it to him, and, uh, and and then she tells him about like some of the experimentations where they said that they were going to they were going to help her and all that, and um, obviously. Uh, not not exactly the case, but at the same time, it, it obviously had a somewhat different effect on her because uh, it doesn't quite make her like go uh, nuts like the serum does on some other people later in the movie. She seems uh, rather sedentary, but yeah, so I mean eventually we hear that, but then uh, – Again, it, I, I appreciate... And you mentioned the movie's pacing Pacing earlier. I appreciate that it does take its time and that, like, all right, that's one thing, and we still don't really know what's going on. And then uh, Ford sends Boyce out, along with the other guys, to uh, just scope out the area and uh, f- figure out a rendezvous point after they do more scoping out of the area in advance of their uh, mission to take on the tower. And then uh, Boyce ends up having to run from some people ends up on a truck ends up in this church that the nazis have commandeered and i think that's when it becomes even more of a horror movie just even before you get to the um to him actually seeing the results of the experiments i mean he's having to do a lot of uh dip ducking and diving for lack of a better term just around that church when you know there are nazis there and that's scary because like they're nazis
1: yeah and i mean i think um you know, there's definitely a, you know, sort of a, a continuous visual metaphor throughout the film, you know, that begins with, um, with Bokeem Woodbine saying, uh, you know, like, why, why did the Nazis build this radio tower on a church? You know, because they, cause they're, they have no morals cause they're, you know, and th- there's this sort of stream running through the movie with, that you know that feeds into that and this idea that um you know that that uh jo- Giovanna depo can only get access to the church by you know being ferried in with the dead mm. like it's hades you know that he's he crosses the threshold under a pile of corpses mm. um you know and so to me i thought that was uh you know th- that was there was something almost operatic about that which i really liked um you know because you could you could just view it as you know it's just some good horror you know this this is really creepy um but there was also i thought a layer to it like that so
0: yeah well that's i mean that's cool that you were able to pick up on it in that manner i uh and i mean i i was more just like ugh, <laughs> and you can <laughs> and, and, and you can appreciate it on that level too because uh yeah. the 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 nastiness of it does uh uh cer- certainly come through um yeah, so, I don't know, like, it, he, I mean, at one, at one point I actually was, like, kind of rolling my eyes about how he didn't get seen by the Nazis, but it was still, like, pretty good horror, like, but he was, like, in there for a really long time, and there was, at that point they hadn't killed a bunch of their soldiers yet, so he's there, he sees the experimentations and has to take it upon himself to uh, rescue, uh, is it, I guess it's Rosenfeld at that point who's there or no, no or, or, or no Joker. or is it yeah 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 so he he gets I mean he gets out of there but he like he sees all of the horrors and I mean I don't know that, that 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 is kind of the point where like I was like oh man like there is a I, I fully kind of got it at that point and I was like Ab- about what they were going for because I mean we heard Chloe talk about it a little bit but then they actually we actually get to see all of it at that point and I was like man this is actually like a something that's going to stand apart from like other world war ii movies like we've seen plenty of holocaust movies but it's it's at that point you kind of figure out like this is doing something like in its own way it's not an alien movie but like it's this hyper realism we talked about and um had some pretty uh gruesome kind of effects that they were uh pulling off to pull that i mean uh i I find it i mean i'm glad like a movie like a a 38 million dollar movie can get made these days but it's cool that like they had all these they were able to use that budget pretty well to like create some pretty uh um, repulsive looking things.
1: Yeah, I mean, the practical effects were were fantastic. I really liked them. Um, and I, I know that I had, you know, spoken about this before, but that was part of the reason why, to me, I felt that the film channeled a lot of spirit of John Carpenter. Hmm. Um, you know, when I, I know when we talked about Jeremy Saulnier uh, a month ago or whenever, um, you know, that we had mentioned Carpenter as well, but I felt that this film... Uh, you know, in a year where we literally have a movie that is a, that is a sequel to a John Carpenter yeah, film like three
0: episodes ago, I talked about it. So, yeah, <laughs> right.
1: Um, I felt that it was, it was interesting to me that I felt this movie was more the one that I think captured the spirit of John Carpenter and uh, the way that he would have done it. Um, and and the, with that, you know, with the practical effects with,
0: yeah, I was gonna uh, ask what you specifically meant by that. in addition to practical effects, is there anything else you really felt kind of evoked his work?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, we talked about this kind of with, you know, with uh, hold the dark, but just this idea of this sort of bleak, uh, you know, tightly wound story about a small group of people in a small area um you know like the thing or the fog or you know or the original halloween for example um you know just it, it, it's a very minute story uh not a lot of of layering to the way that it's you know trying to tell the story it's not too complex there's not flashbacks or anything like that you know it's just it's a very straightforward story and um and yeah the, the reliance on what you see is what you get and you know using things like practical effects and using long takes and using uh you know very clever editing to uh you know to enhance the suspense
0: yeah i appreciated that a lot because i i don't know i mean there are times where i feel like certain movies i go to they end up just trying to do way too much and when they shouldn't i mean there is a time and a place for that kind of thing but sometimes with an action movie like this you just want something that's straightforward with really well done filmmaking and i mean and you mentioned that it's not too complicated not only is that like there's what there's the church there is the there's the village and i mean there's not a lot of different you know settings it. for it like you know and it yeah. but it doesn't feel like oh we're doing this because we're on like a cheap budget or something and we need to like not have a lot of sets it's just that's what the story calls for and
1: yeah i couldn't help but compare it to another film from earlier this year uh, the predator um, it's <laughs> a I, way better movie than that. <laughs> yeah, and I felt that, you know, one of the biggest problems that the Predator had was that the entire movie felt like it took place in one place because there the, everything ran together. The environments didn't look distinct. There was no editing, there was no linear editing to make, you know, these changes in in environment feel different or unique. Um and so I felt that uh, you know that 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 Overlord did a really good job of that, of having you know maybe a quarter of the of the sets that the Predator had, yeah. Um, but making them feel all distinct, making you know the village feel distinct from the entrance to the church, making the entrance from the church feel distinct from the inner sanctum and the, and the laboratory, and you know the, the, these were very uh, you know specific locations. The the village is a village and it's you know we have all we have the houses and it it feels warm but also off-putting because you know we have nazis patrolling Mm -hmm. and the church you know is a church and the inner you know everything is has these characteristics that make it identifiable the the inner sanctum in the laboratory is filled with this you know all these goopy you know clanking you know gross machines And that was very different from the outside world, so I liked that.
0: Yeah, one thing I also think helps set this movie apart from something like The Predator is I think that uh, I I like these performances better than Boyd Holbrook and what he was doing (laughs) in that movie. I mean, because he was just Boyd Holbrooking, uh, for lack of a better term. And I mean, I I mean, I I mean, I really like some of the actors. I mean, I really like a a lot of the actors in The Predator, but like, I mean, that movie falls on his shoulders, and he doesn't. I don't know. he, He just i i mean and white russell had really never done a ton that i'd seen him he had that episode of black mirror which is very good but and he mostly just played like stoner bros in other movies and I, i mean it's funny that like you mentioned john carpenter who obviously worked with kurt russell a lot and uh Kurt Russell, I mean, he, Wyatt Russell had not really never tried to do anything that would really evoke any of his dad's performances. I mean, I don't really, you wouldn't blame him for not wanting to draw those comparisons either. But, like, right. I thought that, like, he, I was really impressed just because I had only seen him in, like, mostly in those modes, like in uh, 22 Street or um, Everybody Wants Some or um, Ingrid Goes West where it's just a t- totally different kind of person. And, like, I did buy him as the leader of the group.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he. Uh, this was. I. I would say that his performance was very much a an ode to his father, um, and I would say uh, something that you brought up that I really appreciated you saying was that he wasn't perfect, which is something that I think. Oh, my letterbox, um, Yeah, yeah. That's what I
0: yeah, liked. That yeah. I.
1: That I think that I think. Um, you know, John Carpenter's heroes have as well is that they're badass. But they don't always make the right decisions um, or that they, they don't always have the answers. And I think, you know, that that definitely comes into play. There, there was almost a line that I want to say it was almost exactly the same um, as so in, in uh, John Carpenter's film, Big Trouble in Little China, somebody asks and asks Kurt Russell something. And Kurt Russell says, I don't know. And then like, like says, I don't know. I don't know. I don't like repeats it over, like a couple of times in a row. And there was a scene in this movie where I don't remember who, but somebody asks Wyatt Russell a question. And Wyatt Russell says, I don't know. (laughs) And I was like, you really are your father's son. Like, it was very impressive.
0: Um, Well, I'm trying to remember in in Overlord, uh, is the point where where he is almost going overboard in the torture, is that before or after he has uh, killed Chase, the photographer guy? I couldn't remember like at what point that was. I, I think that might have been after. I'm um, trying to look back at my notes. No, mm, yeah, uh, that's
1: that's before. Oh, it is before. When, well, he's, when, when he's, he's trying to get information, him, right, right, yeah. right,
0: And then he puts the thing back on his head, yeah. Because mm-hmm. um, I mean, one of the. Um, so he, I mean, like I said, I, I, and I'm glad you brought that up. Cause that was the next point I was going to make was that like, it, it, probably does just feel like the stock leader of men, perfect guy. If you don't allow him to, uh, be pretty flawed and he does go, uh, too far in the torturing, I suppose, even though I'm not really going to feel that much sympathy for Nazis. Uh, but at the same time, it's good. You have a uh, voice there to calm out on that. But like later after that though, is, uh, maybe one of the moments in the movie that doesn't work as much for me is that after that point though when they are back there when they're back still at the house and uh chase goes back upstairs like i just kind of knew that was going to happen and like it felt like like a horror element where some someone kind of comes back to life or catches you off guard or something like that and is able to kill you and i almost would have rather that scene like caught me off guard in the same way the landmine did it could have just been something where they were all in the room talking so you weren't actually thinking about him but whereas when the one guy is walking into the room with the bad guy on the floor not moving like i thought that was a little telegraphed
1: um yeah i agree i would say that's probably the the weakest narrative you know it was a contrivance um i still thought it was a tense scene just the way it's framed and everything and i think that's that speaks to the power of the film that even though you know exactly what's going to happen it doesn't protect you from the feeling of watching the scene um yeah and it's pretty Or at least for me you know
0: yeah and that guy had been uh a pretty pleasant character to that point. Just they're happy to take the pictures, and uh, so it, you did. You did feel for him um, when that happened. But it's also a, um, it's also kind of a. Uh, it gets you to the point where they do get to use the use the serum, and this, see what the effect is. And uh, yeah, so we actually learn what the Nazi steroids do to, uh, due to a dead person. Uh, how did, how, what did you think of how they pulled that thing off? Cause we already talked about some of the practical effects, but that, that, that puts them in a different, uh, puts them to different use.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I thought it's fantastic. I mean, I think, um, you know, obviously there's going to be comparisons drawn to like the thing, you know, Carpenter's film and, and the first, uh, the first mutation scene in the thing. Um, you know, which is equally, if probably, if not more, I would say more gruesome, maybe, maybe this one only exceeds because of, you know, the technical wherewithal that we have today to really ramp up the blood and make it look realistic. Um, Mm. but yeah, I mean, just thrilling nonetheless. And I, I like, I think a problem with visual effects with digital visual effects and, uh, and and the way the reason why I like practical effects for a movie like this is that is the weightlessness that's caused by digital VFX um, that when you when you composite something digitally, it's very hard to judge the weight of an object when you're making it visually. Huh. And so the resultant effect is, is, you know, something you see in Predator, something you see in, in a lot of films where there's digitally composited aliens or monsters or whatever, which is that the monsters don't feel or look real. They move around too quickly. They move around too weightlessly, too effortlessly. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, although there was some digital compositing, I believe, for, the, for that effect, for the mutation in, in Overlord... That basis with practical effects, it's real. There was somebody standing there wearing a rig that, that, that you know, that gives them weight. He's going to move around like somebody who really does have bones jutting out of his neck and coming at, you know, like, it, it was, it felt... And looked visceral and real.
0: Yeah, I was uh, listening to an interview with Julius Avery earlier today, where he he talked a lot about how that meant a lot to him to be able to uh, use the CGI sparingly, and how uh, the guy that uh, played Waffner did, had to go under undergo like five hours of makeup a day or something, and and they did, they were just able to utilize that. And I mean, I th- I mean, I think it does it, do- it does benefit the movie, like you said, even just in those fight scenes. I feel like it uh, seeing i I, I, do th- I do see what you're saying now it almost would feel it would feel a little different if that guy's getting punched or beat up with like a, a hit, hit over the head with a slab of wood or whatever they're beating him up with Like it does seem like it's probably more effective when that person is uh, uh, made up using more practical makeup and as opposed to just computer generated stuff that they could put on him.
1: Uh, yeah, it's it's just it's easier for actors to interact with things that are there. Mm-hmm. And when when you're interacting when you're asking actors to interact with things that aren't there, you're not going to have the same effect actor actors not going to know. What it feels like to break a board over somebody's head if they're just if they're if they're playing to a stick in a green screen, mm-hmm. if they're playing to another person, they're going to know what that feels like. They're going to react realistically. Their arms and muscles, their you know, their being is going to move realistically.
0: Yeah, and I uh, and I wanted to talk about that. Um, really, just though, um, brings me to like I guess where I want to talk about the last sequence of the film because I. Well, I think what I appreciated about it so much is that it felt like so – I don't want to say subdued. It just felt like on a more – a different scale than what you might get with like a a lot of action – movies that would combine action and sci-fi these days where you might get like a big CGI – uh catastrophe like you might in a dc movie or something like that whereas you have this uh, you have this guy and I, I keep calling him waffner but i but i i wanted to make the point that he looked like a combination of to me of uh of like michael shannon and daniel Bruhl's character from glorious bastards uh, right well
1: you know you know who it is right uh it's 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 pilu s bick who's um who plays uh euron Greyjoy in game of thrones oh i did not
0: recognize him
1: yeah, I thought he was right. Isn't that to me? I thought that was excellent. You oh. know, that, that transformation is like, you know. And he's in, I had I, seen him a couple of years ago in um, the Dutch film or a Danish film, um, A War. Okay. which I think is on Netflix, but yeah. Okay,
0: well, I, I mean, I watched Game of Thrones, but I, I, I did not catch that that was him. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah, so I'll just call him Yaron Greyjoy then, because that's easier than me calling him <laughs> Waffner, which just feels like a weird word, and uh, Michael Shannon plus uh, Daniel Brule as I did in my Letterboxd review. Uh, but so, but yeah, when he is, I mean, that scene, I mean, it, it goes on for a while, the fight with him at the end, but like it doesn't feel like, uh, it feels a little different from your typical action movie, studio action movie ending these days just because it is like a more legit regular fight and and you we we didn't even talk about the element of all the other things that they're unzipping from their experiment bags kind of hanging over that scene but i mean like it certainly felt a little unique compared to what you might normally get in a war film to end
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was it's, it's a very um, I thought it was a very muscular ending. Um, it didn't rely on, you know, on blowing the whole building up with CGI, which I mean, they do eventually blow the building up. But my point is, is that the fight itself is very, uh, you know, succinct. It's a lot of people getting punched. And I did like, like you mentioned, that, um, you know, they only... Gently hint at the full extent of everything going on. That, you know, as the fight is ending and as the building's breaking down, you know, as they need to blow the place up, as everything's falling apart we finally start seeing you know them opening these other all, all these other doors and all these other lockers and we have all these zombies and all these mutants coming out yeah. and it's like <laughs> we they're only in the film for 30 seconds before yeah, they all get killed but I, I mean
0: i do like that point like we had gotten the glimpses of what boyce had seen as he went around and so like we knew they were doing messed up stuff but it is kind of you, you didn't necessarily have like a I, I what, what I think a lesser movie maybe would have done is like made somehow uh, once uh, Ford injected himself or got injected with the thing like they would have just had him kill every single one of them, uh, which, you know, maybe it would have been fun to watch. But like I kind of like that we didn't have to spend that much time doing that and we were able to get the main fight and then you kind of saw that other stuff and then we got out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's it it's, uh, you know, again, it's this idea of this sort of hyper realism that. These are not these are just faint distant things that you know nobody's ever gonna know about, and that uh you know are just going to become uh you know sort of tall tales of warfare um yeah um and i and I will say i mean i uh
0: but, but we kind of got kind of jumped ahead there, but i I did like their plan um i mean it was it was pretty cool i mean i we didn't have to see every single step of it to kind of get what they did and It was certainly funny to watch them. I mean, look, I'm a sucker to watch Nazis get outsmarted, Uh, so that's going to yeah. get me excited and you had the you, got, you had the other guys providing the cover with the shots you had the grenade thing i like that chloe got to be integral to that you know they didn't just sideline mm-hmm. they didn't just sideline the woman they let her do some badass stuff like her lighting a flamethrower to one of those things like that was badass and yeah, and yeah i don't know i can't complain like i, I it, it was just like you said it was a it was a refreshing movie and it's cool that like um hopefully it makes money because they got off to a slow start but like i want bad robot to like make more stuff like this if they have writers like Billy Ray, who I usually enjoy his work, like willing to write interesting stories for them, and yeah, I mean, are there are there any other uh, final points or anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to mention before we uh, moved on?
1: No, God, I know we spent way more time on this movie than we were probably planning to, yeah. but it is a fun movie, and I'm I'm glad that it exists, you know. Yeah, so we definitely recommend uh, going to check out Overlord before you get this uh,
0: onslaught of holiday movies because, I mean, it'll at least be there for this coming weekend and probably at least next. So, yeah, I think Elijah and I would uh, for sure uh, recommend that. And, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's move on. I uh, want to talk about The Other Side of the Wind, uh, which is uh, – man, dude, this movie was a lot. Uh, this is the uh, – for those who are unaware or just need a refresher uh, – it's the long-lost movie from Orson Welles, and I'm not going to – it would take me twice the length of the time we've already been talking to explain uh, this movie's journey. Uh, suffice it to say, it had funding issues and then rights issues and everything in between after uh, Orson Welles decided to film this as kind of like one of his last opuses in the, from, what, 1970 1976. Like filming took place intermittently over those years, right, Elijah? Yeah. And mm-hmm. – yes. um, I would recommend if someone is just tuning in and just curious to hear what we are saying about this movie but hasn't actually watched it or doesn't know what it's about, like uh, to check out the documentary that Netflix put up simultaneously with it, uh, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. It talks a good amount about Orson Welles' process to get to the point where he was making the movie and then the making of the movie itself and the parties involved, and it will give you more of a roadmap to go into as you watch it because um, just to give like a brief synopsis, like it's a – Movie that, like Orson Welles, as he says in the documentary, doesn't want people to uh, call autobiographical. But if you watch that documentary and then watch the movie, because I watched the movie first and I messaged Liza, I was like, what the fuck did I just watch? Uh, <laughs> because if you don't know a ton about Orson Welles and his fit work, or really just the story of the people he was hanging out with at that time, uh, it's not going to make a lot of sense to you. And it doesn't even make sense from what I've read. I don't feel as bad because it didn't make a lot of sense to some people that knew more about Orson Welles than me, but basically it follows the uh, fictitious. And I say that with air quotes, because you're going to think it's Orson Welles if you watch the documentary and then watch it, but it follows a fictitious filmmaker by the name of uh, Jake Hannaford. It's uh, he's making a movie called the other side of the wind. And you see clips of that movie throughout this movie. And it's Jake Hannaford's 70th birthday. He is having funding troubles, for the movie, just as Orson Welles did for making the Under the Side of the Wind, uh, he is shepherding a bunch of a bunch of people that are around him, working with the film. People that are followers of his and media members are getting shepherded to a house for his seventieth uh, birthday party, where he hopes to screen the what he was made of the film and uh, receive more funding for it. And there is a lot going on throughout it. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich, who was a um, disciple, if you will, of Orson Welles, plays a disciple of Jake Hannaford named Brooks Otterlake, who's, I guess, the next most important character in the movie. Um, Orson Welles' real-life partner, uh, Oja Kodar, is playing the woman in this film within the film who has a star that walks off the set of that movie just as a star walked off the set of The Other Side of the Wind, the movie that we are talking about. If, I'm, if you're confused after hearing me say all that, go watch the documentary, then watch the movie. Or if you've already watched the movie and you're still confused, um, I'm glad Elijah's here because Elijah, uh, I th- I'm. I- I'm, like, you you had reached out to me about doing this, and I did not have a, a long relationship with Orson Welles at all, and I think that's why it's uh, cool to have you here at this conversation because I feel like there are probably a decent amount of people who, like me, are very new to Orson Welles and maybe haven't seen much beyond Citizen Kane, and there might be people like you who have seen a lot of this stuff. And, I mean, you've seen a ton of movies. You made it a point to make this the 5,000th movie you've ever watched. So— uh, now that i've rambled on about all that because i wanted to <laughs> at least kind of set the table if you want to talk a little bit about it as more of a film enthusiast who or um historian in your own right who had seen a lot of his movies and i'm sure you had been aware of the other side of the wind for a while what was your relationship tracking this film and uh your level of excitement going into it
1: yeah well i mean um so yeah you mentioned that it's my 5,000th film and i mean i uh, uh, a, a few, a handful of those 5,000 uh, that I've watched in my lifetime have been pretty much the entirety of Orson Welles' catalog. I'm, I'm trying to think now that I'm saying that if there's any of his films that I haven't seen, um, and I don't think there is, but I know that, you know, one of one of the the questions that's kind of surrounded The Other Side of the Wind is, you know, what do you call this? Do you call it a reconstructed film? Is it a recovered film? You know, what what is it? Yeah, and, I should um, say,
0: like, Orson Welles shot hundreds of hours of footage, and it was just kind of sitting around in various vaults before Netflix rescued it, I guess. And yeah, certain editors I and mean, producers recreated this movie in what they thought he would like to, it to have been, correct?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, as as an editor myself, this, was, this is kind of like the— you know, the holy grail of, you know, editing projects, right, because right. you have all of this footage that was shot of this movie. Um, you know, th- this was shot on, I want to say, like, we talk about when we're when talking about filming something, we talk about a shooting ratio, which is how much footage you shoot to how much you expect to use. Most films shoot like two to one, three to one, you know, so you shoot three times as much footage as you think you're going to use. I want to say Orson Wells did something like, seven or eight to one Jeez. uh you know shooting ratio for this so yeah there was hundreds of hours of footage for this movie and there was extensive notes too i mean he left a lot a lot a lot of notes about um you know w- w- what he imagined this film being like um and so when you watch the opening credits for the movie and they they get to the edited part and it's edited by bob Muraski and orson welles and I kind of had to chuckle because it's like Orson Welles has been dead for thirty years. How is he getting in editing credit on this? But you know, it just goes to show you that the uh, you know the the, the the essence of an editor is as much in the technical, the you know, dragging and dropping uh, you know video clips in certain places as it is to the vision and um, you know those kind of notes that that Orson Welles left behind.
0: Hmm.
1: So yeah, I mean the, the movie is uh, is. Uh, you know, it, it's a, it's, it's a mockumentary. Is it, is it an experimental film? I, I don't really know. And I I don't really think that, you know, you gain any deep insight by, uh, by trying to, you know, unravel what kind of movie it is. Cause at the end of the day, it's just a movie. Like it's just a,
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I I would agree. Like you, you, you probably need to like, don't get too into the weeds trying to figure out everything that it's about because if you try and follow every single conversation that's going on in this party that is mostly going on throughout the length of the film like you're going to drive yourself crazy as i pretty much did both times i watched it uh and i feel like there are certain parts of it you need to just kind of pick out and appreciate them for what you are because what they are because like the thing that i've really found the most fascinating that i tried to focus on on my second watch after, watch, after watching the documentary following my first viewing of the movie was, like, the stuff with him and Otter Lake. And because it's like a, it's almost a mindfuck if you watch that documentary and you're like, man, like, just based on the timing of when this was filmed. And the, the documentary talks a lot about his relationship with Peter Bogdanovich as, like, the years went on and how it, like, mm. kind of it deteriorated. But, like, I mean, they both still kind of loved each other, but they also had, like, this love-hate relationship going on. And I guess it was a big deal in... Uh, Orson Welles and Burt Reynolds uh, said some not so nice things about him on a late night show, and like it's like all this is going on while they filmed this movie in like 1970 and through 1976 when Peter Bogdanovich had like an amazing like stretch of like making movies. It's like it's not like they filmed this in like 1979 after after Last Picture Show and What's Up Doc and uh, Paper Moon had come out and they could like kind of look back on it like it's happening in the middle of all of this and he's writing this script like as peter bogdanovich is like having this like ascendant career and it's just like it's all happening simultaneously and i just like it was really cool to think about just like the process of making this movie and him like as much as he denies it like he's writing about their relationship and peter bogdanovich is acting in this movie and it's like how How did they do this like i i it's it's really cool to think about if you like strip away like a lot of the confusing stuff from the movie, you know and how meta it is and how weird it is that they kind of try they didn't really pull it off exactly, but obviously given all the production problems, but it's like kind of crazy to think that's what he wells was trying to do,
1: yeah, I mean I think it's an interesting kind of quagmire because obviously. You know, the movie was very uh, deliberate, um, you know, down to having Peter Bogdanovich play a caricature of himself, which I'm assuming was knowing. I mean, there's no way you're going to get one over on. Like, he knew what he was doing. He knew that he was playing a version of himself that was fairly insulting. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean... Obviously, Orson Welles isn't, wasn't stupid. I mean, he was he was very careful and very specific about what he was doing, and it was very intelligent. But at the same time, I mean, the movie reflects uh, almost a senility, you know, this kind of the the musings of an old man where it's like not 100% coherent. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of, you know, kind of, uh, you know, nostalgic reminiscing. His movie doesn't make um,
0: sense to anyone that watches it.
1: Right. <laughs> I, you know, yeah, I mean, I can I can see that. And I think, um, you know, it's interesting to see both sides of that to see the very uh, cognizant, very aware elements of the film, um, where it's very clear that Orson Welles knew what he was doing. And the other parts of the film that feel very emotionally inspired and not very grounded in reality or in a connection to any kind of You know, sensical theory of filmmaking. It was just him kind of prognosticating about his life and about, you know, about the things that he felt he did right or wrong, you know?
0: Like you said, it might not be worth like thinking about it like too much, but like you really like this movie. Like you gave it a really good review on Letterboxd. So, I mean, to be successful as a movie, like, do you think it's it needed to like do you think it only needed to appeal to someone with like the knowledge that you had of wells or do you think like uh do you think that even matters like how it appeals to someone that doesn't have that knowledge or did it need to be like a more coherent thing like what made it mostly work for you on the whole like at, at the end of the day
1: yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's a, you know, it, it's going to appeal more to people who, you know, have some kind of background in Wells, uh, you know, in his personal history as well as, you know, the history of his films. But to me, I also think it's a it's a great film about about making a film. Right. Um, and it's a great film about the soul of a filmmaker and about, you know, how, you know, filmmakers strive to have this this vision and how. Um, you know when they aren 't fully grounded and attached to what their vision is that they just have to fake it you know that they have to you know there has to be a sense that they know what they 're doing um and so yeah i mean it maybe it maybe it appealed to me in that way too, which is also kind of cheating because you know as a you're, as just, a, you're, filmmaker.
0: you're, yeah, you're a filmmaker too so, as a, by as a filmmaker
1: uh-huh. but I think that maybe you could extend that to anybody you know who creative you know, person. Uh, yeah, a creative person, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that you're you're not a creative person. Obviously, you are. Um, but I think it's, you know, to a, it's just about the degree, of, you know, a, what how much creativity influences your day to day life. Um, and for people where creativity is their line of work, I think these are very, uh, you know, real and very detectable personal. Uh, you know feelings and problems, so yes.
0: I mean, the scenes it's cut together really weird. There's like a, a thousand cuts in this movie, like which is what I had talked to you about, which is like it, it makes it quite hard to follow, but it does go in and out. Like it'll drop in on one storyline that it hasn't been on for 20 minutes, and then all of a sudden it'll go show that movie within the movie for the next 30 minutes. And I, I we should talk a little bit about the movie within a movie too, because I think there is some uh, interesting stuff to unpack there. But I think what you're talking about about it being a movie about making a movie, I also think it is interesting uh just depiction of what it takes to get a movie made it's more specifically i guess when you have that first scene where uh he doesn't show up when they are showing it to the producer but he still expects his uh friend to get the producer to come to his birthday party and uh then he'll be able to really sell the guy in the movie there i guess and but then he's like having these discussions throughout and having to also uh talk to these um i guess we're i guess some of them are some reporters throughout are that are just hanging out there too and he eventually approaches approaches otter like too about getting money for it and it's like just but people are commenting on the movie at the same time and whether or not like it's how close it is to getting done and it's like he has i guess he has some kind of vision in his head for what he wants even as they comment just as wells did that like uh hannaford's making it up as he goes along it's like There's this kind of struggle where it's like keeping the vision that you want while having to like not make compromises in order to – while still trying to get funding. And amidst all the craziness that is this movie, like there is like at least that through line of a guy just trying to like get his picture made and when he's past his prime, which is what Orson Welles had to deal with
1: too. Yeah. I mean movies are – I think that's something that maybe a lot of people don't understand is that movies – are not, it's not like, you know, somebody doesn't come to the director and set a bag of money on the table and say, make the movie, and the director takes the bag of money and then goes and makes the movie. (laughs) I mean, yeah, in a perfect world, that's what would happen. But a lot of the time, uh, especially back in the day um, when this movie was made, uh, or when when the footage was originally shot, rather, I should say, Um, that wasn't the case. I mean, a lot of the time, what would happen was a director would have an idea and producers would come in and give a little bit of money and, you know, say, make a little bit of it. Let me see what, you know, what it looks like, you know, how's it going to go. And a director would make some and then show it to the producer. And if the producer liked it, they would contribute more money or the director would have to go and find another uh person and this was this was very much a product of the post-studio era you know because in in the days before uh new hollywood before the 1960s and 70s it was very much like a studio would have producers that would read scripts and they would set aside money and they would hire directors and that's how that movies would get made they would have the money set aside and the movie would be made on that money in New Hollywood and in, in a time after studios where directors had as much power and influence as producers, um, it wasn't it wasn't that way. And a lot of the time you ended up with movies like this and like the movie within the movie where it's really just being cobbled together by this, you know, by by anybody who could, you know, who cares about it. So mm-hmm.
0: and it certainly is interesting to think about that. Just, I mean, I don't know. It, it's a, it was just a surreal viewing experience for me once I had a better idea of what was going on and just, like, how meta it was. And, like, the documentary even has a scene where Wells gave some kind of acceptance speech at, like, an AFI award or something like that or accepted some kind of lifetime achievement but used it as a chance to, like, show a clip of the other side of the wind hoping it would make people want to give him money, and yeah. uh, which they portray in the documentary as, like, being really sad. But I, like... I don't know i just enjoyed thinking about that time in hollywood and where stuff just kind of got done that way and where it like in that his life was one that spanned from like a time like where he is working within that environment where he came up when it wasn't like that and one of the interesting things i found when i i mean i like the only other kane movie i've seen now or the only other wells movie i've seen now is citizen kane and but just through reading all about him and all that was just like and reading up on that movie, it was just, like, how much autonomy they were given to make Citizen Kane and how unprecedented that was at the time to just give, like, what was, I guess, a bunch of radio people, basically, the the reins to a studio. And all of a sudden, 34, 34 30 years later, like, Wells is trying to figure out how to operate in something totally different. So, again, I'm kind of going on about something that's, like, with that outside the scope of this film. But, like, it is, at the same time, the film's commenting on all that, and I enjoyed thinking about all of that
1: yeah I mean, and the movie has um, you know it's it's obviously it's obviously dated um, because what it's commenting on is not necessarily relevant to today's day and age. we're We're back into an era where studio power is more relevant than directorial power. Um, you know, for example, probably the largest, most obvious one is Marvel.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, Marvel's not struggling to cobble together a movie. Ryan Coogler is not you know it was not begging in the streets for money to make Black Panther like that like those those movies get made um you know with on very tightly organized and very uh you know strictly established budgets and things like that um so this notion of it is you know it dates the film and I think it, uh, you know, gives it sort of quaint historical quality to it. It's a movie that came out now, but it is a, it is a movie that very much feels like a movie from the 70s, mm-hmm. um, which I think it's interesting that you can do that. I mean, I guess you can only do that maybe if you're actually using footage from, from the 70s right. like this movie was. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I felt like that was an interesting aspect of it being a, a, a modern film that was speaking to issues from a bygone era. Right. Well,
0: what uh, one of the things that like, I guess is also kind of in the past in that this movie is getting released now, but with the movie within the movie that he is making is from what I understand after watching the documentary is like Wells is commenting uh, maybe not so positively on certain kinds of European art house cinema from the time. And yeah. which is like probably would have like maybe uh, meant a lot more to someone if this movie had gotten released in 1976 than if it had gotten released now. But uh, what did you make of that specifically if that was his aim, but also just how they did shoot that stuff? Because it was actually pretty interesting to look at. And apparently a lot of
1: editing went into some of those scenes. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm about to put on my film nerd hat and yeah. go real, real in hard yeah. here. Take but, me to um, school. Yeah. So in 1970. Uh, in 1970, there was a movie called uh, Zabriskie Point that was released um, by the Italian director Michelangelo Antonioni, hmm. who at, when 1970 had had, by, by 1970 was considered to be you know, one of the greatest you know, Italian uh, you know, new wave directors, uh, one of the greatest directors of all time. He directed these movies, L'Aventura, La Nota, and La Clisse which were, uh, you know, this kind of informal trilogy of, of sadness and, 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 you know, aesthetic with Monica Vitti in, in main roles. Um, and he had directed the film Blow Up, um, which was also extremely, uh, you know, famous. And then in 1970, he directed this film called Zabriskie Point, which was his American debut. Um, he had, you know, come... He had crossed the pond and made this film in America, uh, and it was it was a disaster. I mean, people really hated it. It was really, and it and it's funny because it is so evident uh, that that's what Orson Welles is parodying. I mean, Zabriskie Point, set in the desert, uh, it's not really much of a plot. The characters are very much cardboard cutouts and they're very, you know, they just kind of look attractive and do their thing. They don't really act. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot of sex in it. Hmm. And I mean, when it came out, it was, uh, Zabriskie Point, when it came out, it was critically panned. I think it's like one of the only movies that, you know, like Vincent Canby and Roger Ebert and like every single person who was a famous critic at the time pretty much universally said it was a terrible movie and so i think that was pretty much what orson welles was parodying you know was this this movie uh of of self-inflated importance of <laughs> of just attractive people in the desert having sex with no real you know there's no real context to it it doesn't really have any import on the overall story but it's funny because to me you know when i saw Zabrisky Point. Uh this was probably a few years ago. It was when Zabriskie Point was going through this kind of re, you know, re-critical re- re-evaluation. reevaluation. exactly. Um thank you. And uh you know people were saying, "Well, okay, maybe it's hollow, but it's so like it's such a well-shot movie or whatever." And it's funny to listen to people talk about the film within a film in The Other Side of the Wind and hear the exact same criticism. So hear it like word for word. Like, I don't know what it's about. There's too much sex. It's weird, but it's really well shot. Like,
0: <laughs> Apparently, in the documentary, they said they spent like six months filming that bathroom scene. Um, yeah. Which, or not filming it, uh, editing it. Um, editing. Yeah. Uh, and again, you don't feel bad if you watch this movie and you don't know what's going on because no one in the movie knows what's going on in the movie within the movie, and but like it's like it's interesting to look at and I guess some of those like the 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 sex scene on the mattress spring is like very very unique and uh apparently a lot went into that too and and it was interesting the, the thing in the car was interesting in that like they give the illusion that it's moving but apparently it's not actually moving uh, the car isn't moving at all and they just have dudes on it ho- holding hoses so it's pretty cool they created the illusion that there's like this sex scene in this car going on like as it's speeding down a highway in a thunderstorm when it's not actually the case Like a a lot of a lot of interesting stuff went into it, and it's it's interesting to hear you talk about the parallels to that other movie because they 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 probably weren't imagining this uh, reevaluation of Zabriskie Point when they filmed the other side of the wind.
1: No, and or maybe they were, and I mean maybe this is just you know I I don't want to sound too much like an Orson Welles fanboy, but I mean the notion that maybe this was what Orson Welles saw coming. That he, that Zabriskie Point had been out for you know several years at this point, you know when when uh, when they were filming The Other Side of the Wind back in the 70s, and um, you know maybe this notion that it was just like, you know, it was so hollow, and yet people were trying to make, you know, trying to make reason of it and trying to understand what it was trying to say, and we're trying to do the same thing to his film inside of a film and i'm i'm really part of me wonders if that was the point hmm. if it was you know to sort of parody the audience just as much as he was parodying the movie to say like you guys are going to watch this stupid film within a film that has no purpose We're going to go way overboard with filming it, and we're going to do so much and make it look so weird and intense. And everybody's going to talk about it, and there's going to be absolutely no reason for it.
0: (laughs) Well... (laughs) may very well have been his goal. Who knows? Um, Was there there any other – I mean there's like so much to – you could talk about in this movie. But again, I'm not going to try and dissect the things that like I didn't totally get. But I mean is there anything else that really struck you about it or anything that you uh, wanted to expound upon that we didn't already touch on because – Again, it's not exactly like some linear movie. We're just gonna run through like we did with Overlord. You know, I mean, you could pretty much jump in, in any spot you wanted to. Was there any uh, one scene that really caught you, or any other interlude or anything like that that you wanted to uh,
1: discuss? I I liked the question of you know is is Jake Hannaford a, a self insert for Orson Welles, or is he an insert for John Huston, for the actor who's playing him? Um, cause I think there's elements of both of them, you know, I think, and, uh, it was interesting to me cause I know I talked to a few people about it, like would have Orson Wells been able to play that role? Um, you know, or was this a role that was, was perfectly suited for John Houston? Um, and I know that, you know, my opinion was that I think that John Houston is capable of doing those Orson Welles-y sort of things um, that the character had but not not in the reverse that huh. Orson Welles playing the character would have come off as you know over dramatic and and you know silly because right. um, when 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 you know Jake Hannaford is when he's in the bathroom and he kind of breaks down uh, when he's talking to Brooks about you know to Peter Bogdanovich about money and you know, how it's pathetic that he still has to, you know, beg for money at his age. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so, it's almost so silly to see John Huston, who we think of as such a, you know, a man's man director or whatever, uh, you know, who directed all these old school, you know, Treasures of Sierra Madre and, you know, African Queen and Asphalt Jungle, like all these, you know, real macho films to see him crying over a sink is, you know, kind of, it's a bizarre sensation and a bizarre thing to watch, and yet it's still, to me, it was so believable and it was so, you know, raw. Which, you know, I don't know if if Orson Welles had been playing that character, if it would have felt as real.
0: It's interesting. I mean, like I, I've, I guess, I haven't seen enough of uh, other Wells movies that he acted in to like really uh, comment on that. But it's it's hard to, if 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 you know as little as I do, and then you watch the documentary, it's hard to see him as anything other than Wells just knowing what was going on throughout the whole production of that movie but I mean I know that uh, the, the movie they talk about in the doc how like Wells and in um, Houston were old friends at the same time and uh, he obviously had no problem just kind of writing Peter Bogdanovich into the script basically so that might who knows maybe that would have been actually what he had in mind I, I don't know but it, it's kind of like just uh, it'll be there for people to study for years I guess and to and to ask that question Um
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think that generally you could say that probably about the entire film is that, you know, it's almost ironic that we have hundreds of hours of footage and we have hundreds of pages of notes and interviews and discussions and all these, you know, things, uh, you know, about what this film was supposed to be. And the reality is, is we'll probably never have a solid answer about whether or not this vision, you know, what the final, you know, product was, if it if it's really true to what you know Orson Welles wanted, or, you know, if what we got is, you know, in any way, you know, representation of what the original vision was. So.
0: Yeah, I guess I guess you're uh, gl- you're obviously glad that it exists even in this state. What did you What did you make of like Netflix deciding to be the one to put this out?
1: Um. You know, I'm glad it happened. I have my reservations about Netflix, um, you know, as a service and about the, uh, you know, the the earnestness of the people in charge, uh, what their goals were, um, you know, what their goals continue to be with releasing original content. But, um, you know, I think it, it is an interesting, you know, message that in this day and age, this is how Orson Welles... Gets a movie release. I mean, just the, just the same way that you know we we had this conversation about oh, about yeah. uh, Martin yeah, I Scorsese.
0: Yeah, we in the last time you were here was we were talking about a Netflix movie. I'd forgotten I, I forgot right, about with
1: that. Jeremy Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know that these these auteur directors and for better or for worse. Uh, you know, Netflix is the service, or is the you know the, the the studio now that has the money and the wherewithal to release their movies. So
0: it also seems like rather fortuitous timing that they are trying to get some extra cachet of like um, prestige by putting this out like right before they really think they have a legit chance of like finally getting a best picture nominee with Roma. Uh, yeah. So I think that's. I mean. A uh, good timing on their part, uh, maybe. I don't know. I'm not really sure how most people have really reacted to it because uh, it's not like they were doing this with the expectation of like the other side of the wind getting an Oscar. And I, so I haven't really followed the people that follow the Oscars and those kind of things talk about it in that context. But I just thought that was curious. But um. But yeah, no, I mean I think uh, overall like you would recommend that people see it obviously and I think people that know as much about movies as you do are going to be able to obviously get a lot of different things out of it. But even if you're more of a, a Wells novice such as myself, I think just if, even if you watch – only because I mean they talk a lot in the doc about Citizen Kane and just how that effect living up to – ever living up to Citizen Kane again really affected affected Orson Welles even at the point of his life where he made the other side of the wind. So even if like – you I mean – this ties into the last thing we're going to talk about because we're going to talk about Filmstruck now, but I mean I was able to watch Citizen Kane on Filmstruck a couple of weeks ago, and mm. um, I, I, who knows exactly like where the easiest place to get it's going to be when Filmstruck goes away, but I would recommend uh, before that happens if you uh, – anyone that is like someone that's trying to learn more about classic film like i am to uh try and make that one of your priorities before you watch it if you especially if if you have an interest in watching other side of the wind because i think you can get a lot out of the other side of the wind if you've only watched citizen kane and The love me when i'm dead but i think uh you can probably get a few other wells films on filmstruck and i know there are a few on fandor because i'm I'm a fandor subscriber and i'm gonna probably go back and watch a few of them there but um that, that that's kind of where I wanted to end this, Elijah, because, I mean, I think – I think it's interesting that we are having to have – because we could have – the other side of the wind easily could have come out like three weeks ago before the film strike news came down, and I wouldn't have really had this perspective on it. But, I mean, you asked, yeah. me, you, you asked me about this, and I'm like, shit, like I, I – really just regardless of whether filmstruck was going anywhere i'm very honest and open about my blind spots on this podcast and how i i don't know as much about like old classical films as i should but i'm trying to slowly but surely like rectify that and i, I thought like regardless i would have said citizen kane is something i need to get to i was able to get to it because of filmstruck and that's really like not going to be the option for people in a few weeks at this point point. and i'm pretty sad i know throughout thanksgiving i'm just going to like take advantage of it with the time i have left but uh, I'm someone that's kind of coming to it in a newer way uh, and is just recently trying to really get as much from it as I can. Uh, you uh, work for Turner, which – uh which owns filmstruck and has uh kind of made this decision and, and you made the suggestion that we talk about it a little bit so i'm not sure uh where you kind of wanted to start with that or if there was like kind of one main point about you want what you want to say about what filmstruck meant to you or uh or anything like that but i wanted to kind of give you the floor for at least a minute before i kind of made any other points i thought about making
1: yeah no i i, I appreciate that i mean uh, filmstruck was you know i i'm been working at Turner for you know less than a year, um, and FilmStruck itself was really only uh, you know around for about two years. Um, no, I, didn't,
0: I didn't realize that it. Only, I, I I just thought I only learned about it in the last year. I didn't realize. It was, yeah, you know. no,
1: it, it's it's a fairly new service, and um, you know we I, we could talk about you know the business decisions and why you know why the decision was made um, you know by corporate to close it down. But I know that at the end of the day you know, those things are, it's in the past and talking about, it's not really going to change those, uh, you know, those decisions. But I know that, um, it meant a lot to a lot of people. It meant a lot to people who we, um, you know, value people like Barry Jenkins and Guillermo del Toro have both come out and, you know, made statements about, uh, you know, the closing of Filmstruck. And, um, uh, you know, it's tough. It's tough as somebody who worked, uh, you know, on Filmstruck stuff, I have, credits on that site i mean like there are there are special features on that site that my name is attached to um and i'm not sure what the future what the future of those uh you know or, is going to be i don't know if they're going to be rehosted somewhere else i don't i don't know what the future of that is um but i can say that uh you know as a resource within the film community it was a it was a pretty big a pretty big thing um it it kind of i think it the the content and the, you know the films that were available helped to expand people's horizons and and the kind of curated original content was something that no other streaming service has done or, or continues to do since then um you know no streaming service that i know of besides maybe i guess my movie movie sort of does it but you know curated content doing um you know special programming and making new you know mini documentaries and things like that to uh you know to accompany the films so uh you know that's something that i'm i'm gonna miss certainly yeah and, uh, and
0: you mentioned the economics of it a little bit i know like obviously these decisions are above your pay grade so you're not going to know yeah. the answer to like every question that i would have but i mean uh as someone that i'm sure saw a lot of class I mean, watch watch uh, more classical films and has forgotten more of them than i will ever know before film <laughs> truck was even a thing do you h- how much can you speak to like uh how much you think it costs to license even just like one thing like a citizen cane or something like that and just how easy it will be for maybe other services to pick up some of these titles after the fact just so they aren't really hard for people to track down
1: I don't know much about Citizen Kane specifically. Yeah, or just mean, or just uh, the, a
0: movie of that time or something. You know what I saying? The,
1: the bulk of the films on there were were our own films. I mean, uh, it was okay. Warner Warner Archive. Um, gotcha. You know, so it was a lot of stuff that you're going to see. You know, playing on TCM, stuff like that. So it's basically stuff um, they already have. They, stuff they already have the rights
0: to. Yeah. And, uh, I guess. Yeah. I, I guess yeah, and I guess I I would need to go talk to like some kind of uh, entertainment and rights and clearances lawyer about like. What if what what if Netflix decides to actually start offering more classical films? Like would they be able to easily get those rights? And I think that'd be an interesting question for some enterprising entertainment journalist journalists to go look into, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean I think the bit, one of the big questions is what's going to happen to the Criterion Collection? Because um, you know, that uh you know, for, for listeners who don't know, the Criterion Collection is a company that um organizes uh special edition DVD, Blu-ray um, uh, releases of movies that are, you know, hard to get. They could be, you know, difficult to find because of, you know, their perceived quality or because of the, you know, the circumstances of their release or things like that. Um, but they, this company makes special edition versions of these movies and releases them in really, really nice sets. Um, and for a while, the Criterion catalog was available on Hulu, um, and then in 2016, uh, they struck a deal with Filmstruck when Filmstruck was new and um, moved the entirety of their streaming catalog over to Filmstruck. So this was um, a couple hundred movies, uh, prob- probably close to a thousand films, and pieces of bonus content like like commentary tracks and uh, special features and things like that. Um, that were pretty much exclusively available for streaming through FilmStruck. Um, so I guess this
0: is, so. In theory, Turner could spin that off to bet, whether it be back to Hulu or someone else if they wanted well, to. I
1: guess. Yeah. I mean, if with, with FilmStruck gone now, I'm assuming that those rights lapse. Like, we're you know, oh, Turner okay. doesn't gotcha. have that deal anymore. So okay. what? Where Criterion goes now is you know anybody's guess. So it, they go at back least to Hulu. You,
0: Right. At least you. Those will probably end up somewhere. You just hope it happens sooner rather than later. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah definitely.
0: Do you have any, um, before we sign off, if there are any listeners that do have Filmstruck access, do you have any uh, titles you think that you, you would recommend or any, uh, any, any personal favorites? you say, like, hey, if you haven't seen this, like check it out because you don't know when you'll get a chance to easily see it again? oh man there's a lot there's a lot yeah of that's, 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 that's that's a dumb question <laughs> to ask you you've seen too many movies well, i'll just say I, I do think it's like a it's a lesson to the people like me that never replaced my xbox a few years ago and i have a laptop that doesn't have a dvd drive i think it is a lesson in like the value of physical media and uh being able to have something like
1: that to hold on to yeah and because i, I, I will say go ahead i'm sorry
0: no that's just what i was gonna say was like i mean uh, Cause I know that you are one that like, you can easily say something like that, but I know you, every time there's some kind of criterion sale, you're posting on social media about like what, what, what it did to your paycheck or something like that, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it, it teaches a lesson to the folks like me that only streamed like, Hey, there's some value in going out and buying DVDs. Cause you never know when like some media company is going to make a financial decision. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I will say that um, one of uh, Filmstruck's hosts um, for some of their online intro and outro content, uh, Alicia Malone, mm-hmm. uh, she also hosted the Filmstruck podcast, um, which is now coming to a close. But um, uh, she uh, luckily is still working with us. She's still working on TCM content uh, during the week, you know, with weekly programming. Cool. But I know that on Letterboxd, she made a list of some of her choices of uh you know movies that you could pretty much only find on on filmstruck um that she had suggested people watch so i would i would direct people to her list um because there are some great options on there of movies that not a lot of people would think of um, and I, and if you look online you can definitely also find lists that people have made of out of print or difficult to find movies um, that uh, and when I say that, what I mean is that there is no company that's, that has released them physically. Um, so, for example, there's the film *Chunking Express, mm. which is a Wong Kar-wai film from the 90s uh, from Hong Kong. And the only uh, release of the film physically was uh, Criterion DVD and Blu-ray. And the, the rights lapsed to Studio Canal a couple of years ago, and they never released a physical copy. So... The only really easily accessible way, unless you wanted to pay two hundred dollars and buy the Blu-ray off of Amazon, the only Jeez. really easy way to watch it was to watch it on Filmstruck. Um, so if you go online and look up you know Filmstruck out of print list or things like that, you'll be able to find lists of films um, on on Filmstruck that, you know, maybe they're not at the top of your list of things that you were thinking about watching, but they're things that uh, if you don't watch them in the next, uh, 16 days is it, Yeah, thereabouts the next yeah. 16 days or so, you're not really going to have a chance to watch them, uh, for the foreseeable features. Right. features
0: I'll so. check out that letterbox list and uh, maybe even link to it in the description of the podcast. So, uh, people can go find some of those titles before and watch them over Thanksgiving. Uh, uh, yeah. But but Elijah, uh, I, uh, I've been going for a while, so I think I'm gonna uh, uh, I'm gonna let you go. But uh, uh, normally you uh you, you we we just talked about FilmStruck the last couple times I've had you on, and when I give you the opportunity to plug something, you normally plug that. But if you if you <laughs> we just talked about that for 20 minutes, so if you if you have something else you want to plug, <laughs> uh, now's the time to do it.
1: Uh, Turner has several other properties besides Filmstruck. Yep. So we're always uh, happy to have you guys watching TBS, TNT, Cartoon Network. Um, there's a lot of holiday programming T- TCM. coming up. TCM, of course. Yeah. I mean, we could always use viewers on TCM. Um, <laughs> TCM is going to have a lot of holiday programming within the next month. Um, there's going to be a lot of great Christmas movies and a lot of great movies maybe that are good for the season that you might not think of otherwise. So, um, you know, yeah, check it out. Tune in.
0: All right, as usual, you can find me on Twitter at Josh Chernavoi, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y. And uh, on Letterboxd, same thing, Josh Chernavoi, two words. I appreciate you guys listening. Uh, Coming up next week, I'm sure I'll have something on Widows and then... I don't really remember what else is coming out this weekend, but I'm going to be not having to work as much for the holiday week. So I'm sure I'll be seeing a bunch of movies and having some stuff out for you after Widows. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.